Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am thrilled and honored to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership funk, rock, and soul singer and author Don Silva, whose incredible musical journey spans Sly Stone, Parliament Funkadelic, and the Gap Band. In addition to legendary concert tours, those associations included monumental projects like Sly's High on You, Parliament's Funkadelic, Funkintelliki versus the Placebo Syndrome and Motor Booty Affair, Gap Band 4, and many, many others. A founding member of P-Funk Offshoot, The Brides of Funkenstein, in 2000, she released her acclaimed solo album, All My Funky Friends, and later showed off her range performing with the Platters. Since last year, she has been riding the high in success of her autobiography, aptly titled The Funk Queen. Just like its central character, it's an amazing, one-of-a-kind book in both content and format that spans her fascinating family heritage through decades of funk's most vital works, all brought to vivid life through a massive hardcover edition featuring hundreds of often astounding photographs. Don, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful, and thank you. I'm just honored to be here today, Scott. Uh, so great to have you, and uh, you're in your, your home environment there, I guess, right? Yeah, I am. I'm at the, what they call the, the little house today. So yeah, over on the south side of town. Yeah, I'm at home. This is my favorite. This is my uh, sanctuary over here. Yeah, so folks know you're in Northern California, like uh, Sausalito or Sacramento or whereabouts? Sacramento. Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And I can see a record award. So that's a very cool environment. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, very nice. I'm very, yeah, I'm proud of those. So yeah, I'm yeah. very proud. Yeah, as you well should be. So we talked about this a long time. It's so good to finally have you on. The fans are going to really love it. I believe so. And it's been a long time coming and way overdue. So again, I'm just totally honored to do this with you, Scott. So thank you for taking the time to interview the bride of all things, Funky. <laughs> right on. All right. Let's jump in. So Don, okay. I'm going to jump in, uh, fast forward a little bit. Um mm -hmm. You know, that whole Sly situation, when you first got with uh, this guy. Um, Which guy? This guy? Yeah, that, that guy. Um, yeah, that guy. How did you have, where did you find the gumption and resolve to kind of hit the ground running with that crazy situation? I think it was a divine order of things. I didn't plan it at all. Uh, started off like most people being a, a fan uh, Sly and the Family Stone was my favorite all-time gr group in the whole world. And I just happened to be uh, working with a local band uh, called the Chocolate Chips right here in Sacramento. And a guy named Michael Samuels, uh, who was a percussionist and drummer, uh, just called me one day out of the blue and said that Sly was looking for new singers for a new record he was doing and asked me, did I want to meet him? 
And I was like, wow, who wouldn't want to meet Sly Stone? So he picked me up and off to the Sausalito, uh, we went to the record plant. And that's where I met him. Uh, walked in the door and uh, I was told to sit down and pretty much the rest is history from there. Uh, they were working on a song, I think I uh, called uh, Crossword Puzzle. Mm -hmm. And uh, by chance, uh, Sly's youngest sister, um, they called her Vietta, they called her Vet. And she was hoarse and she couldn't hit those top notes. So back in those days, I was pretty much of a mezzo-soprano singing classical. So hitting top notes was my was my forte. That was my specialty. So Michael said, uh, well, you know, Sly Dawn can hit those top notes. And then I heard this voice in the darkness in the studio say, okay, so what you waiting for? I'm like, me? <laughs> you talking about me? So yeah, the, the, and the record plant was at that time, there was a like a gladiator arena, right? Everything was in the round. And I had to climb these steps to get the top to the top of the uh, arena, so to speak. And they had this microphone hanging out of the wall. And little sister, which was a uh, tiny uh, Lucy and vet, were circled around that microphone. And that's where I walked those steps up to that microphone. My legs were shaking. I thought I was going to fall. I was so nervous. I was surprised that my legs had the strength to carry me up those steps. Right. So I stood uh, at that microphone and I sang my part like my life depended on it. And when that session was over, Sly said, welcome to Sly and the Family Stone. And that's how that happened. Wow. And how old were you? Uh, 22 at that time. I was 22. Wow. 22, 22, 23. I was around there. Yeah. yeah. So, and just reading the book, you know, the stories about being in that environment, that house and that dog situation. And yeah. Just, wow. Yeah, that was a it was a a heck of an experience. One one hell of a ride, an incredible journey, which I'll cherish. Now, when you decided to move on to P Funk, how did Sly take that news? Uh, not very well. We were we were his Sly's girls, not just the background singers, but uh. Cynthia, you know, we were always Sly's girls, and he was pretty, uh, you know, very territorial over people that worked in his, in his organization, and he he's, he's actually took very uh, great care of the females. And um, the fact that we went out as with Sly and this family stone to be do a special guest performance, uh, we were supposed to do a three-month tour that actually lasted about I don't know, a handful of dates, maybe 10 shows or so. And then Sly decided to leave the, leave the uh, tour early. Um, but unbeknownst to us, uh, Dr. Funkenstein uh, fell in love with the blend of the, that the Sly's girls had. And, and I could understand Sly being a little uh, territorial in terms of us because we, we rehearsed at his house for, uh, at the ranch in Novato, California for a solid year before we went anywhere. Um, we polished those parts. And so we had a vocal section that sounded like one unit, one blend, one vocal cord, which is unusual. Um, even then, because somebody is usually always wants to over sing their parts or under sing their parts. And so when you find three uh, women or female singers, vocalists, as Sly said, they were, uh, we were, um, unique. Not only were we beautiful, but we were also had a perfect vocal blend, which we studied and he taught us. He taught us how to blend uh, the sound like one one vocal cord. So we took that that sound with us when we went on the road. And that's the sound that George Clinton heard when we were singing background for, for Sly. So when George reached out for us to do sessions uh, with him, I don't think Sly was very happy about it at all. I don't imagine he would be. Um... But uh, did you were you able to have a subsequent relationship? You know, was it cordial or not? Well, we still had a cordial, very close relationship, even though we, uh, Lynn and I, were going over and doing work in sessions. We were still doing um, shows with with Sly. Actually, the last show we did, I believe, was uh, in the winter of uh, 
I think so it's 77, I think maybe. Uh, yeah, I think it was just the turn of the uh, January 77, but December, I'm sorry, December 76, we went to New York to do a fundraiser for Jackie Wilson, who had just had a stroke. And um, that basically was our last show. We were all you know, kind of on rock, rocky ground, you know, because we were going over to the funk camp and we were basically told not to. Uh, and then I think if you think back, it was uh, a violation for us to actually do that because we were on a retainer. Sly paid us whether we uh, went out on tour or not. You know, we were on a weekly retainer. And um, so we were so in, enamored by the, 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 the uh, Parliament Funkadelic that we kind of just went over there anyway. We used to sneak over there anyway. So um, eventually Sly sent us, uh, when he found out that we went down to the, um, ooh, the Oakland Coliseum when they was doing the Mothership Connection live and we, we're on stage and George took us up there and set up some microphones behind the back of the uh, stage and right underneath the mothership. And someone went back and told Sly that we were on stage at the, uh, at the Coliseum. And so he actually uh, fired us. He sent us a letter basically telling us that our services were no longer uh, uh, necessary or rendered. We, we got, both of us got fired. Mm. That was just kind of a formality though, at that point. Sounds yeah, it like, was. Yeah. Was yeah. What, yeah, that, what, what was your ver very first impression of George Clinton? Uh, he was a little intimidating. I was a little nervous. I thought he was really abstract. Uh, uh, I thought he was very weird. I've never seen anybody quite like George Clinton before, on or off stage. Um, he was funny. Um, Actually, kind of, you know, really, really uh, fell in love with him. I mean, his whole character—he was—he was so. Uh, someone said uh, Jeanette Magruder once said he was organic, and he was every bit of that word. And uh, I just—he was a, a really lovable and friendly person, uh, very animated. So it was—it was—it was easy to uh, to to uh, get close to him and, and build a bond with him from the beginning. But I, I liked him out of the, out of the gate. I liked him a lot. I thought he was really a very, very creative and a, a fun person to be around. Hmm. Had a certain magnetism, right? Charisma, magnetism, the whole yeah. nine yards. Yeah. I yeah. used to study him and watch him. He was, a he on stage, he just had so much uh, charisma, so much timing and, Everything, all of his movements, everything he did was was uh, was uh, uh, electrifying, you know. And I really liked I liked him. He was to me, he was he seemed to be like a Goliath. He was bigger than life, and I uh, just uh, enjoyed being around his around him as much as possible. I was learning a lot from George. It was a different type of music and a different type of approach than than coming from Sly's camp into Parliament Funkadelic. So yeah, George was really cool. In the beginning, yeah, really, really cared about him deeply. Did you feel more like a deer in headlights the first time on stage with Sly or the first time on stage with P-Funk? Well, kind of both. <laughs> the first time with Sly on stage uh, was at the American Music Awards. And uh, I went on that, did that show without no rehearsals. I had no idea what songs we were going to sing, what parts I was going to sing. I just, uh, and Sly talked about it in his book as well. So that must have been a very uh, memorable uh, show that night. And I, that was the night when the, the family stone was starting to unravel a bit. And um, I remember the background singers and Sly's sister, Rose, didn't make, make it to the, uh, the show that night. So about 10 minutes before we got ready to go on stage, Sly looked at me and said, you're going to sing all Rose's parts tonight. Then, then that was the whole deer and the headlight thing. Then I was like petrified. I kept looking. I saw an exit sign right behind Sly's head. And I think if it wasn't for Cynthia, I would have been my, on my way out the door. <laughs> so she kind of like dragged me to the stage. Cause I was just, I mean, not a, not in the, I wouldn't even say a, a deer in the headlights. I would say petrified. I had no idea that I was going to be caught up in that, but, I went up to I went up onto that stage and walked up to these platforms and I 
again and sang the parts uh, the parts that I knew. One song that we did was called um, Loose Booty, and I did not know that song. I've heard it uh, on the albums. I've you know I'm familiar with the song, but I did not know Rose's parts on that song. So I pretty much faked my way through that entire song live in front of a studio audience. I mean, you're talking about the American Music Awards in front of millions of people. That was my introduction and my first show with Sly and the Family Stone. So yeah, I was petrified. But when we got to the song Higher, I started feeling really good because I, I, I knew that song very well. I mean, I studied the heck out of it. That was one of my favorites. So I knew all Rose's parts. So I did sing those parts again, like my life depended on it. And uh, that's my first experience. This, the second experience that wasn't a deer in a headlight, it was just like uh, more like surreal. The fact that Lynn and I were standing right underneath the mothership and uh, you could feel the dry ice or this, the mist that was coming from the jets of that mothership and kept dropping on the little drops. And every time I looked up, I that part was surreal. More so, I wasn't nervous. I was more excited than nervous. So that was also a very good experience as well. Do you remember what venue that was? It was the Oakland Coliseum. It was uh, January 1977. So it was kind of like a homecoming too, right? Well, Oakland, yeah, that's a kind of my backyard, you know, Northern California. So the word spread like wildfire that Lynn and I were now officially members of uh, probably Funkadelic, but we weren't at, as of that as of yet, we weren't. The fact that George has invited us down there that night, um, it did, people did find out about it and uh, immediately thought that we were part of Parliament Funkadelic, but officially we were not as of yet. Yeah, so, and the first show, I believe, for the Brides, uh, we talked about this, but I was at that legendary Starwood uh, show in Hollywood, California, uh, where mm -hmm. it was announced on the radio like that same day. And um, I just had a feeling that it would be the whole Funkadelic thing, you know, even though I think they only mentioned the brides on the radio. But yeah, that was still to this day one of the most unforgettable live experiences I ever had. Wow, wonderful. Nice to hear. Um, I think I can share the same feelings. The Starwood was. Our, the Brides of Funkenstein's debut performance. Um, that was the first show that we did with the with Bootsy's band, and then we had a uh, Jeff Cherokee Bun was on bass and Blackbird, and then we had the Horny Horns. You know, Fred, uh, Wesley, Maceo Parker, Cush Griffin, and Richard uh, Gardner, Rick Gardner. Yeah, and um. I don't, Frankie Cash was on drums and um, keyboards. We, who was playing keyboards? It was Razor Sharp, Razor. Yeah, so we could, like we said, we had Bootsy's rhythm section. And that had to be the most powerful show that ever. And so what saddens me deeply is that it was never recorded. Um, but it did go down in history. And anybody uh, or anyone like yourself who was there and remembers that experience basically says the same thing about that show. It was a, a the Starwood on Melrose, and it was a maybe a 500 capacity venue, I believe. And they must have crammed about at least a thousand people in there. I mean, like sardines, and everything was wet. It was so hot and so sweaty and so just but a 45 minutes to an hour of nothing but hard driving, hard hardcore funk that night, and uh. I remember Atlantic Records was in the audience and I was looking at them and they were so excited. They just couldn't believe what they were witnessing. I'm on the stage and I couldn't believe it. So I can't even imagine what the audience was feeling. But like you said, that, that was an experience of a lifetime and I'll never forget it. Yeah. I mean, I just, for hours, just the crowd, we, you know, wherever they went, I had to go, but it was okay. Cause we were all on the one, you know? Well, yeah, I do remember it was like a wave, like an ocean, because everybody was joined, like, you know, at the hips. And there was no space, like I said, literally sardines. And I remember the crowd going this way and that way. And then sometimes they would go back and all the arms. And was, that was a that was quite phenomenal, I might say. That was the funk that night. <laughs> Definitely. Blistering, yeah. smoking hot. Yeah, it was.
Yeah. Yeah. I was on a high from that for days. <laughs> That's good to know. Good that to was know. Amazing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the brides like rode that success. Um, and you guys were just, you know, on this fast track, you know, to success. And I got to show you, you just got to hold these up because these are the originals from when they first came out, you know, when yeah. I bought them, okay. the original vinyls. Wow. Look know. at that. This yeah. I have mine in the back. I, I still have mine. Yeah. I still got yeah. mine. Yeah. Um, what, um, what can you tell us, Don? I know in the book you talked about it, but, um, you know, things could have been bigger. Things could have gone further. Um, what kind of happened that, you know, stood in the way of you guys reaching your full potential in your mind? Ooh, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I talk about it in full detail in my book. You know, it's just like, it's it's hard to just sit here now and basically talk about what basic or anything that actually suppressed our our efforts because there was a it was a combination of a lot of things um it was always a fight it was a fight between the record company and our our management company to 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 met to promote the group and I mean, I have to start with Parlette first because Parlette was the was the first uh, female group born out of the Parliament Funkadelic Empire, and kind of watch what happened to them first, you know. And I didn't I didn't really think about it at the time that their efforts were being suppressed by our own management company. And I, like I said, I talked about it uh, to great uh, length in the book, um, where they had a song out called uh, "Pleasure Principle." And uh, it was a cute, I thought it was a little odd that we were coming from Parliament Funkadelic and, and Malia and uh, was, she was so hardcore, so hardcore funk rock that also so was Debbie and Jeanette that they, these ladies were so, they were the, the female version of, of, uh, of Parliament Funkadelic or Funkadelic more so than Parliament. They were raw, uncultivated, powerful, powerful women and so I was a little confused when they got a track called The Pleasure Principle, uh, which I thought was a little cute, too cute for them. It was disco. But then, they, of course, they were signed to Casablanca, and Casablanca had a, had a lot of hit records with Donna Summers because and she was on that disco vein. She was the, uh, you know, the queen of disco. So I can understand maybe that's why they, they picked that particular single for Parlette, but I believe they should have picked a single called Wolf Tickets, right? That was probably the uh, more aggressive. But even that song wasn't, didn't capture their true talents. And so that's when the kind of... I, 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 like, I liked the Cookie Jar on that first record. I love Cookie Jar too. And I, I heard, and that's another one of my favorites. That was great. That's a great song. And I believe Prince did a remake of it too, right? Yeah, yeah. Unreleased. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if that had to be the two songs, Cookie Jar or Wolf Tickets, that should have been one of the single, either one of those, more so than than the Pleasure Principle. It was a little, like I said, it was a little too disco for me, and I, I'm definitely not into disco at all. You know, it's a little too bubblegum for me. So, um, but that was confusing, and so, but still, that song because they came from the Parliament Funkadelic Empire and because they were females. It was still doing well, especially in the Midwest, like Detroit. And there was a DJ called um, Mojo, Electrifying Mo Mojo, that played the Pleasure Principle on the radio like all day, every day. So it was a it was a big hit in uh, Detroit and in cities that can actually get the uh, the voltage of the radio station, maybe like Lansing or. Uh, what else? Uh, I mean, I think Lansing and a couple other cities that were close to Detroit where they could hear that song. But other places, they just uh, they didn't really um, push the single. And I don't know if it's because they didn't if they didn't have a radio mix to play on the radio station or not, but they didn't promote it at all at all. So that that was my first like confused why the first female group out of the organization did not get the, the airplay they were supposed to get or the, the um, promotions. They didn't do the soul train, which was that song was perfect for soul train. I think maybe Funkadelic might've been too uh, 
hardcore for for Soul Train at, during that time. So that's understandable if they never performed performed on that show. But Pleasure Principle and did with uh, Parlette would have been perfect for Soul Train and American Bandstand. But they didn't go on those shows at all. There were no videos. They're, they were very limited on their photos and promotion was just, I don't know what happened. And according to the Parlette management, and, uh, and I talked about it again in the book, they tried very hard to promote the girls, but they were instructed to wait and not promote them. And because they wait, waited, they end up losing their, uh, the bullet on the, on the billboard charts. It just took a nosedive and that was the end of Parlette. Right. So, and, you know, when you're young, naive, you don't think like, wow, the same thing that happened to Parlette's going to happen to the brides, you know, so you're caught up in the whole hype of the being with the number one group in the world. And then, so now you have an opportunity to, to do your own group, right. And to go out and open up for, for your favorite group. And, started off with a blast and then all of a sudden you started to, to do the same the same thing that happened the parlette started happening happening to the brides of Bunkerstein as well yeah it's detailed in great detail in the book but the one thing that's still just hard for me to digest mentally is the why you know why? well i know why i definitely know why i mean misogynistic misogyny goes back to the beginning of time and we were we were coming up in during a time when women, if you were too strong and independent and too powerful, then you were deemed a threat. And we were. You had to be powerful and strong to stand on stage with the funk soldiers with with Parliament Funkadelic. You cannot be timid. And we were very aggressive. I didn't start off that way. I started off like very timid when I was first with P Funk. Like I I learned from Gary and Glenn and and um, studying, um, watching the others uh, on stage, and um, especially with Gary Scheider, because Gary used to, what he called, uh, we used to go to his room. Uh, when the shows were over, we would go and spend hours after the show having funk lessons. And on our day off in the hotel, there were funk lessons. And it's just singing the funk is, to is a total different ingredient as well. Okay, that's a whole different formula. That's not just like basic, basic R&B. It's, it's a different, even the funk lyrics and the melodies and the timing. It's not just the funky beat, the catchy hook. It's uh, that has its own special formula as well. And so I thought I knew everything coming out of Sly's camp on how to sing the funk. I didn't learn that until I got with uh, P-Funk with, with Gary and Glenn teaching us, right? So I thought that we were very strong women. I, I called us funk warriors. But as far as if you don't understand egoism, if you don't understand that some certain people might not want to share the spotlight and will do everything they can to suppress you, then that's what that is. And that's what happened to us. I think that it was the fear of the brides maybe surpassing them. And I believe that might have very, very, it very may well have happened if we, if we would have been allowed to grow, which is kind of silly to me because we didn't write any of the songs. We, uh, whoever wrote the songs would actually benefit and they would catapult them into a whole nother level as well. So it, it was a little extremely confusing, but as the years went by and the experiences as to why we were suppressed, it made perfect sense to me. But if you read the entire book and you still don't understand why, then maybe I didn't quite uh, explain it enough, but being, being a female artist in that in that industry during that time, women were basically taking a backseat. No, it wasn't it, it wasn't on the same level. It wasn't on the same playing field. It, it's explained, but no matter how it's explained, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know? it, it it it's it. Of course, it doesn't make sense, but it but then it does make sense. The whole fact is is that if you're not willing to share the spotlight egoism gets involved in it, then that's exactly what it is. I remember reading in an article about, you know, and I'm going to say about George, it was a Black Echoes uh, uh, interview. When we went to Europe, uh, the trades were saying that the Brides of Falkenstein and Parlette were 
taking Europe by storm. It's like we were a funky new phenomenon. That's what with the women. They were expecting Parliament Funkadelic. They knew how incredible the bands were. They knew they were just phenomenal. There was nothing in the world like it. But they weren't expecting to see how powerful these women were. So when we got to Europe, we, you know, uh, Europe was under a, a feminine, funky siege. And that's what was written in the trades. We were blowing up over there. We were huge, very big, especially, especially Parlette. Parlette was pretty much the label, the, the new, the new label. The brides, we were always kind of a little more, you know, sophisticated and a little more radio friendly, easy listening. But when we got over there and we knew we had to compete with Parlette, then we stepped our game up too. So the trades basically uh, started. From city to from from country to country, the word spread about these powerful women. At that time, there was five of us. These powerful, funky women, Parlette and the Brides of Funkenstein, and everybody wanted to to do to interview us. Everybody wanted to to have us on their shows and the radio stations and interviews and TV shows. And basically, the journalists were told that we didn't do interviews, and a lot of them were blocked. So we had two very uh, strong female uh, managers, road managers that went out there. And so they started taking matters into their own hands when they found out that the folk organization was suppressing us and blocking us and shutting us down, literally. They started doing these interviews secretly. We were sneaking these journalists into our dressing rooms and um, sneaking down to the radio stations. We had to leave the hotels sometimes at five or six o'clock in the morning. So nobody in the organization uh, would tell on us because they had people in the organization that always wanted to get on the good side of the funk leaders of the, you know, the, the generals and the, the lieutenants and the ones that worked from the top down were always watching to make sure that the band members and the girls were making moves on their own. So I remember one time Jeanette Washington and I, uh, we got a call from a DJ at a radio station called Radio Baton. That's that radio station is still there today in Paris, France. And we had to sneak out of the hotel at five o'clock in the morning and before anybody got up so no one would see us. And we went to the radio station to do an interview. Once I got there, I was so surprised to find out that these DJs, these French DJs knew more about uh, our careers and our history than I did. And some of the questions I couldn't even ask, I was totally blown away about, you know, some of the things that they, everyone in the industry wanted to know about, but we weren't allowed to talk about. So the fact is, is that if you think to, in this day and age that you don't understand why, then you have to talk to the women of Parliament Funkadelic and ask each one of them why, if they understand why it happened as well. That sneaking out in the book, you know, the way that's detailed, uh, it just blew my mind, you know, as you guys had to do that, like you're, you know, teenagers sneaking out to go, you know, have some drink or something, you know, it's like, and you're doing something that's supposed to be encouraged and supported, you know? Well, that's what it, that's what it felt like. It felt like we were being disobedient children and that was hurtful that we had to do that. It broke my heart. And, and and I did talk about it in the book when we were at the radio station and I was sitting at the uh, with the headphones on and they had the two DJs and they were so excited and they were so nervous and they were like little kids. And, you know, it was supposed to have been a 10, 15 minute interview. We were there for, I think, hours and uh, we wanted to tell them anything that they wanted to ask us. Like, ask us anything and we'll tell you. Like therapeutic. That, yeah, it was very <laughs> therapeutic. And uh, I remember that I wanted... I was depressed. I wanted to cry and I didn't, I didn't understand. And I just, you know, why we had to do that, you know, until I read that black echoes magazine. When I read the black echoes magazine about, uh, with George saying, and it isn't, it's in that, in that magazine, those are his words, not mine. And he said that, uh, he wasn't going to let these little girls kick him in his, in his, in his butt, except he didn't use that word and that he had to get his temperamental, shit together that isn't black and white print and when i read that it broke my heart mm. it did and i want to say that today if he's listening and if he's watching this it did break my heart because i didn't understand I mean, he created this these groups he created us why not let us grow why not us why not 
helped us spread this this art form, the funk. Because, you know, back in the day, the funk used to be what? A bad word? Uh, and just like James Brown. James Brown is the most, the funkiest creature ever created. But even him, he didn't call himself the funk, the godfather of funk. He called him the godfather of what? Oh. So, yeah. as I believe that the industry at the time did not want to enhance this art form. They didn't want to make it legit. And what the funk was not legit. It still is not to this day. Yeah. yeah. So for someone to have the audacity to put the funk, the words the funk on the cover of a book, in this day and age, or even then, has to be very brave and courageous, so the critics say. But um, I'm a funk warrior, and I'm on a mission to actually uh, keep this art form alive and to basically pass on the, the real, true heart of what the funk music really is. Yeah, and that's why we all love you so much, you know? How are you doing? Yeah. Thank um, you. Love you back. What what would you say though? You know, I've heard from folks in the camp that will chalk it up to, oh, you know, the girls they like were jealous of each other and they had infighting and that that kind of undermined things. You know, what do you respond to that? Yeah, that's all of the above is true. There was the inner fighting over men, clothes, costumes, drugs. Yeah, there was all of that, but it was actually, but actually. Um, encouraged and promoted and that's how you control people not so much just the women it's just to play one against each other to make one female feel like she's more important than the other or one bass player is more important than the other bass player or one guitar player is more important than the other that's how the organization operated it's divide and conquer it's the whole dissension it's just a confusion that's what uh, how you control an organization, but it's sad because eventually that organization will flounder under its own weight of corruption. That's what happened. But yeah, the women used to, to, they played the two groups against each other, which was heartbreaking for me because when we were in Europe, we were under one funky umbrella. We were all sisters and we all encouraged and promoted and, and supported each other. But when we got back to the States, they pulled the rug out from underneath us and they separated us. Right. That they start playing the groups against each other. They started making doing way more for the brides than they did for Parlette. And instead of Parlette getting mad at the organization, they got mad at Lynn and Dawn. We were the bad guys. We were the culprits. But we were also very, very young and, and easily to be yeah, manipulated when you're a kid. Because what the organization did is they took what we love the most. When you love something and use it against you. When someone takes something that you love and use it against you, because we were always under fear that it would be taken away completely. And for personally for myself, I was a slave to the rhythm of the one, the beat. I fell in love with the music and uh, that was my drug. And I would have pr practically did anything to, to hold on to my job. I didn't want to lose my job with Parliament Funkadelic. So I tried to be conforming and, 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 and not uh, make too many waves or try to do anything where I would lose my position. But it got to a point where it's like, I'm compromising my integrity and I knew I couldn't do that any longer. And it, it also got to the point where I felt like, I hope they didn't do to us what they did to Parlette. But it's like being in any type of abusive relationship of a female is in an abusive relationship with a man who's consistently badgering her fighting her hurting her so if you if you think that that person is not going to do the same to you if you're in the same relationship with him then then you're then you're you're uh greatly mistaken if, you, if you're going to abuse one person you're going to abuse the other as well and that's what happened to both of the female groups so eventually i just i just didn't want to uh put up with i wasn't going to allow it to happen to me anymore yeah and Although um, you got kind of left holding the bag, though, when Lynn, like, left, right? Yeah. Like I said, here we go again. It's like we you really don't know who's playing who against each other. You don't really know who's what. If somebody was whispering something in her ear 
or whispering something in my ear. But the whole that whole organization was 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 controlled by confusion, dissension. So Lynn and I went into the organization like the best of friends. She was closer to me than my own sister and loved her dearly, and I still do. And we we had a bond that was unbreakable. But it seems to me that once we got into the organization, there were so many entities or uh that's the word, just so many uh clicks, factions. Just that it, it seems like that was the 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 agenda, a hidden agenda to 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 de separate us, to break it up. Because if once as close as we were, if you can't control one over the other, then you lose you lose the power. And I, like I said, we were very young. I didn't understand it at the time. I was very young, but um, they started the organization started doing the same thing with Lynn and I after they had separated us and had us. The Parlette and the Brides were just basically hardcore enemies. And, and some of that's still happening to this day. It worked. Um, we just didn't like each other. But that we didn't realize that we were being set up. But now after Parlette is gone and it's just the Brides, and then they started doing the same thing to Lynn and I, just separatism. So I really don't know what happened to her, what was going on in her mind. You might have to ask her some of these questions as, as to what happened to our friendship. I was older than Lynn. Lynn was just a baby when we got in Parliament Funkadelic. She couldn't have been a little over 18 years old. So I was older. I was a little wiser. But I had never experienced anything like this before. This was a first. And so when she didn't, um, the, the whole show up for a show, she just left. And that was uh, probably one of the hardest uh experiences I've ever had because uh, we were so close and I I remember we were in the dressing room I can't remember where the show was uh draw a blank I think it might have been in Maryland somewhere I know there was about a 10,000 capacity uh venue it was sold out and uh Lynn just 10 minutes before the show Lynn wasn't there and so I remember somebody saying Dawn 10 minutes 10 minutes and uh, I was like and then I remember Gary coming up and saying, where's Lynn? And everybody saying, where's Lynn? And I didn't know. And in my heart, I knew that Lynn wouldn't just miss a show. Um, and something had to happen to her horribly. You know, like I said, that was my sister, you know. So I'm scared to death. I thought she got in a car accident. I, I just didn't know what happened to her. Five minutes before he's getting ready to go on, no Lynn. And so I'm, I'm panicking. But then I'm looking over at the, the bridesmaids, which was Jeanette. Magruder and Sheila Horn at that time, and they had on their little brides, I mean, their little background outfits, right? <laughs> so um, I just, you know, asked them, I, I mean, I remember that like it was yesterday, I asked them, um, do they know any of the Lee parts? And for them to change out of the background outfits and to put on some Brides of Funkenstein outfits, and they did, they put, they changed, and then the three of us hit the stage. And, uh, and that whole show was surreal. I just kept remember looking behind me and uh, uh, looking for Lynn. And I just, I know something horrible had happened to her. I was just, I was just devastated. I was so afraid for her. And then uh, we went, we did the show, the, the three of us did the show. And um, like I said in the book, when the show was over, people stood and clapped and shouted. And, and I was... I was happy about it, and then I wasn't because I was like, "Wait a minute, you guys like the show? I mean, Lynn's not here, and you're still clapping. Aren't you? Aren't you devastated like I am right now? Where's Lynn?" So, but the audience audience clapped and they loved it. And um, I go back to the hotel and uh, call the police, highway patrol, everywhere, everywhere, and um, come to find out that Lynn was at home in Ohio and she was fine. But she left. And when she did leave, she also took uh, the keyboard player with us, which was Judy Morrison at that time. So and uh, so neither one of them showed up on that show. That probably had to be one of the worst heartbreaks I've ever had in my life. Hmm. So but I did talk about it in, in even, even in more detail than what I was talking now about about the uh, that experience. But I don't know. I've forgiven her. I love her, you know, forgiven her. And uh I realized that I, I don't know what 
astronomical amount of stress that she was going through at the time. We both were going through something in the, in the organization. So, but it had to be something really, really horrific in her life for her to do that. So. You think Junie uh, influenced her to do that? I don't, I don't, I really can't answer that question. I don't know if he did or not. You'd have to talk to Lynn about that. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, of course, Junie was going through his own challenges as well in the organization because they didn't just play the women against each other. They they played the musicians against each other too. But I talked about it in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. And after all that splintered and you were, you know, trying to find your way, how did you first connect with the Gap Band guys? Uh, I finally had enough, you know, uh, I think in 1980, was it 1981? After we did the, uh, the Brides of Funkenstein one, uh, what is it? Cash box. Yeah, it was a cash box music award. Rhythm and Blues Award. We won. We beat out the uh, the Pointer Sisters are in the category with us, along with uh, Sister Sledge and Sherilyn and the Brides of Funkenstein. Of course, you know they they didn't have anybody suppressing them at that time, so they all had number one hit records. All three of those groups, right? The Brides of Funkenstein. We were more of a nostalgic underground for you. Which they they knew about us, but we didn't. We had Never Buy Texas for a Cowboy was out at that time. And even that record was as bad as that thing. That is one of the baddest records George ever, ever produced. But the fact that he never did the radio mixes or let us do any videos. No, he didn't do any, you know. <sighs> you know I, I was looked at it as sort of like a sister jam to Knee Deep. You know, out the same that was year. The, really yeah, long. The, it's got the guitar solo. It's yeah, got, it's, yeah, yeah. Never Buy Texas from the Cowboys. That's my favorite Brides of Funkenstein record, actually. I love Disco to Go with Lynn. I do. But uh, that one is just, uh, till this day, it still reaches out and touches me. I still play that over and over and over. And and the fact that there was no radio mixes and, and uh, there was no videos there was no we didn't do any uh barely any radio station interviews some but the fact that the promotions on that was just squashed and then uh a guy named a little kid a kid and he was a kid at the time named henry mayers who was actually doing promotions for um probably funkadelic and for bootsy at that time right he's the one that helped with the push flashlight to the top of the charts. And that's a whole nother story I talk about in the book too, with the, with the black syndicated radio stations and blah, blah. But, um, Henry Mayer's, uh, he took us under his wing and then, and he actually took that single over to, to, to a lot of different DJs and they started playing it. So at one time, I believe that that song nearby Texas was at the, about to fall off the charts. I think it was like way down in the, in the 90s somewhere, right? About to fall off the charts and be a, go with the oblivious like the rest of the female songs in that organization. But he got out and he did everything in his power and pushed it. It, it rebounded. It went from 90-something up into the top 50s or 60s or something like that. And then we started getting uh, all of these, doing all these radio interviews because the, 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 the songs started coming back. And then I remember uh, these DJs uh, who are, I'm friends with quite a few of them. One, his name is Nicholas Busby, and he's a DJ out of Cincinnati, Ohio, or Dayton. I think it's Dayton, out of Dayton, Ohio. I believe it's Dayton. And he almost lost his job by playing The Brides of Funkenstein's there by Texas in its entirety. And you know that song's 15 minutes long. So back in those days, you know, the songs, you know, if they were longer than three minutes, then you weren't going to get any airplay. But they didn't have any radio mixes, right? They didn't have any TV mixes. And that was done by design. But these DJs, they found a way around the program directors and the gatekeepers, and they played that song anyway. Several DJs that I'm friends with to this day. And um, they actually bought my book, and they write me, wrote me personally about some of the things they had to do to keep that song out there. And Thanks to these DJs across the United States, Rolling Stone magazine uh, listed that song as uh, Never Buy Texas from a Cowboy is one of the top 50 albums um, 
whatever released, I believe it was. And um, we came in at number 26 on the top 50. On the top 50, or was it a top 100? I, I forgot. Maybe it was the top 100 or something like that. Out of the top 100 uh, albums ever released or something to that effect. And we came in at number 26. And so when Rolling Stone did that, then that record started blowing up again, right? But I forgot the question got me on well, a tangent. Well, lucky for me, KDAY in Los Angeles played all the long versions and all the deep album tracks. And of course, I bought those records anyway in their day of release, anything that was P-Funk back then. Um, but well, I think, you know, songs like Amorous and Party Up In Here, I mean, those should have been hits, big hits. Yeah, they should have been. And all of that should have been hits, you know, but... Like I said, it's just they were just squashed. But back to us winning the American Music, I mean American Music, winning the Cashbox Rhythm and Blues Awards and beating out. And I, I, I knew for sure that we were not going to beat any of those girls out by any, you know, at all. I knew. But when they announced the winners was the Brides of Funkerstein, that just kind of gave me all new lease on life. Like, oh, my God, are you serious? We won? And we didn't win for any particular song because we didn't have a single on the charts, right? Someone said that it was uh, the ballad uh, that Ron Dunbar uh, wrote called uh, I'm Nothing Without You. We didn't win for that song. We actually, I believe it was Never by Texas from a Cowboy that actually won that award. But um, for us, and um, it seems though as soon as we won that music award, and that isn't the first award that the Brides of Funkenstein won. We've won total four. Lynn and I won three together, too. We just didn't know about it until after the fact. And that's another story. But um, when we won that award, after that, every, we were cut off at the knees. Everything went defunct. Done. The organization did everything in their power to shut us down. And they did. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.